It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome back to the Durr Show. I get a lot of emails asking me why I'm not defending Donald Trump. Well, the reason is because I have had a policy for the last uh, more than half a century that I defend somebody once. I don't want to become the lawyer for a person. My much stronger preference is to represent somebody for an event, for a crime, for an allegation. Uh, so I don't represent, I've never represented people uh, uh, more than more than once. I do have to admit that there's a part of me that wishes that I could represent either Donald Trump or some of the co-defendants in this very, very weak and very dangerous RICO case. By the way, for those of you who don't know what RICO means, it's not the name of a person, although some people associate it with the mafia. It's uh, racketeering influence and corrupt organization. From the title, it's clear that it was intended to apply to racketeers. Who's a racketeer? We know who the racketeers are. Uh, is this the end of Rico? Uh, Edward G. Robinson in that in that great in that great film. Well, it's not the end of Rico. Rico has gotten a new life. Uh, it's now a law in which people, prosecutors, ambitious prosecutors, can go after people who are engaged in political activities. I think often when I read this indictment, my God, it could have applied to those of us in 2000 who tried to undo the election of George W. Bush. We thought it was wrong. We thought that uh, Al Gore had won uh, uh, Florida, that the 576 or whatever number of votes there were, uh, were very much... uh, uh, less than the number of votes that were prevented from being cast for for Al Gore. Remember the butterfly ballot, uh, the hanging chads. Uh, there were some minority people who weren't allowed to vote because uh, the, the lines were too long and the polls were closed. Uh, there were all kinds of problems with, with the election. And, you know, uh, Gore's legal team lobbied state legislature. <gasps> That's now a crime. Demanded recounts over and over again. That's now a crime. Uh, did other things of, of the kind that uh, that uh, that uh, lawyers commonly commonly do in protesting elections. The first thing you do when you're protesting a presidential election is you prepare a slate of alternative electors. Of course, the Democrats call them fake electors. They didn't call them fake electors when Jamie Raskin. Um, when others uh, on the Democrat side uh, uh, talked about the possibility of of alternate electors. Uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe wrote legal memoranda uh, that was used by by, uh, the Gore team. Uh, You can't have one rule for Democrats, one rule for uh, Republicans. Now, I don't approve of what was done uh, by Donald Trump and the people on his side. I don't approve of it. I think he lost the election fair and square. I don't think he should have made that speech on January 6th. 
Yes, it was constitutionally protected because he said he wanted people to have their voices heard peacefully and patriotically, clearly protected by the First Amendment. That doesn't mean I like it. I don't like a lot of the speeches uh, or a lot of expression that I defend under the First Amendment. I've defended some pretty, pretty horrible stuff. I've defended communists, Nazis, pornographers, you name it. I don't have to like these people to defend them or approve of what they've done. And I don't approve of what Donald Trump did, but his uh, speech was protected by the First Amendment. And his call to uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger was clearly protected by the law. Uh, what he did is he said, I need to find 7,000 whatever votes. I am sure that people in the Gore campaign were saying, we need to find 600 votes. Oh, my God, there must be 600 votes out there that haven't been counted. Let's pick this county and that county. Let's ask for selective. And that's what they did in the Gore case, selective counties to be recounted. Not all of them. They wanted only selective counties. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow that. And they shut down the recounts and they handed the election over to Al Gore. A mistake, in my view. I wrote a book about it called Supreme Injustice. You can still get it online. It's a real attack on the Supreme Court, especially on my friend uh, Nino Scalia, who cast the deciding vote, and refused to grant the stay, uh, granted a stay in this case, rather, uh, granted a stay to stop the stop the uh, uh, the counting when he had failed to grant stays, sometimes even in capital cases. So I accused him of a double standard. We made up for it. We became friends. And I was friendly with him till the day he died. But he was wrong. And I didn't commit any crimes. I didn't do anything wrong. And neither did Lawrence Tribe, uh, David Boys, and the rest of the, um, uh, the, the defense team for Al Gore. They did what lawyers do. And I think What's being done here is very similar to what was done. It's different. Every case is different, but there are more similarities than there are differences. And that would be true of other elections to the 1960 election, the Tilden Hayes election, elections going back to uh, Jefferson uh, versus uh, Burr in 1800. You remember that from Hamilton. So I'm not going to defend Donald Trump, um, but let me tell you, what defense I would make if I were to be defending him and others. Let me start with the easiest case. The easiest case is Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows was the chief of staff. That is an employee of the United States government. What he's accused of doing was organizing meetings, placing phone calls, doing exactly what the chief of staff of the president of the United States is supposed to do. He was acting clearly within his authority as a federal employee. And the statute provides that if you're acting within your authority as a federal employee and you're charged with a crime for doing that, you can seek to move the criminal case from the state court, in this case, the Georgia court, to a federal court. And it can be a federal court anywhere. It can be a federal court in Georgia. It can be a federal court in a different district. Uh, but it can be a federal court. You have to start it. In, in the district where the alleged crime occurred. So what he would have to do and what his very excellent lawyer has already done is make a motion uh, in the federal court to remove the case from state court. That decision has not yet been made. And there is in the statute a degree of discretion that talks about the interests of justice. But the interests of justice are clearly served by getting Mark Meadows out of this case. Mark Meadows is not really accused of 
being the uh, originator of this. He was a, uh, you know, a phone call placer. He was an operachnik. Uh, um, he was not somebody that the Rico statute intended to bring with Enrico. But if he's not removed and if he's not severed, that means that Mark Meadows is going to have to sit through it. Maybe a six-month trial. It may even be longer than that, depending on various rulings the judge makes about what kind of an instruction he's going to give, what kind of evidence he's going to be permitting. But it can be a very, very, very lengthy uh, trial. And he can sit through the trial. I've had clients whose names were mentioned once or twice in a long multi-month trial, and they had to sit through every day of the trial. That could happen to Mark Meadows. So I think Mark Meadows has the, uh, the easiest case, both for removal and on the merits. But let's get to the case that I would make uh, for Donald Trump if I were his lawyer and for the other defendants. Let's remember, too, some of the defendants can't move to remove the case. Rudy Giuliani can't. He was not a federal government employee. President Trump can because he was a federal employee. They will argue that what he did was not within the scope of his presidential powers. I think that it's clear that when you're the president of the United States, um, it is within your power to try to remain president of the United States by all lawful and proper means. So there will be a real question as to whether the, the statute permits him to remove the case. I think in Mark Meadows' case, it's very simple. But let's assume they lose all that. And then we have this trial. It's going to be what, what a logistical nightmare this trial is going to be. 19 defendants. There may be more or less. We may see some supplementary indictments. We may see some people severed. We may see some, some people flip um, and become witnesses for the government. One of the reasons people are named as unindicted co-conspirators prevent them from becoming witnesses uh, for the defense. And so maybe they'll flip and become witnesses for the prosecution. But assuming the case goes forward, uh, here's the defense um, I would make. And I've kind of suggested parts of it. In the past, uh, I, my opening argument would be as follows. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is one of the most significant cases in American uh, political history. And it's a case in which the entire process of electing presidents is put on trial. And there have been cases in our history of fraudulent elections. There have been people who've gone to jail for fraudulent elections. Fortunately for America, never in a presidential case, but mayors, governors, senators, many people have gone to jail. There have been many fraudulent elections. Some elections have been undone. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when you consider this case and when you hear the evidence, I want you to play a game that law school professors play with their students. It's called the Socratic method. And in the Socratic method, what we do is we ask students hypotheticals. We ask them to consider facts that may or may not exist because hypotheticals help to explore what the law is. So here's the hypothetical that I want you to consider when you hear the evidence in this case. Imagine, imagine that Donald Trump was correct. Imagine that the voting in Georgia was improper. It could be for one of many reasons. Maybe the machines were broken. Maybe the machines were fixed. Maybe enough votes were not counted or discounted. Uh, just imagine if there were 10 or 15,000 or 30,000, some claimed even more, 
votes for Trump that weren't counted. Imagine that case. Imagine if Trump were right when he said the election in Georgia was stolen from me. Think about that for a second. Trump is right. It's a hypothetical. You don't have to believe it. Just imagine it. Trump is right. The election, the voters of Georgia voted more for Donald Trump than they did for Joe Biden. Think about that. If he was right, if the election, in fact, was taken from him improperly, he would not be in this court today. In fact, we would be commending him and praising him for bringing a flawed election to the attention of the public. We'd be clapping hands every time he walked into the room. Oh, my God, that's Donald Trump. That's the man who persuaded the Georgia authorities that the vote was not proper. And he got them to change the vote. That's a commendable thing. It's certainly not a criminal thing. So we now imagine that Trump was right. Now, many of you may be saying to yourself, but Trump was wrong. We, we don't believe that. We think the election was fair. No. But I want you to imagine that Trump was right. If you can imagine that, then you have to conclude under that scenario, you would not be guilty of anything. You would be doing the right thing, alternate Elector, sure, you want that. Recounts, sure, of course you want that. So now if you're convinced, if I've persuaded you that there'd be no crime, if in fact Trump was right, if in fact the election was flawed, if in fact more Georgians voted for Donald Trump than for Joe Biden, if in fact that was correct, now here's the key point. If that was correct, then you have to ask yourself the question, what if Trump honestly thought it was correct, but he was wrong? What if, in fact, there were more votes for Biden, but Trump honestly, honestly, not fraudulently, not corruptly, honestly believed that he had been denied sufficient votes to change the electoral tally in Georgia? If you believe that, or if the government fails to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt of the opposite, you must acquit because the crimes of RICO and the crimes of conspiracy are crimes of the mind. They require a state of mind, a specific intent. In the conspiracy case, they require an agreement, an agreement to commit fraudulent or corrupt conduct. In the RICO case, as you hear from the judge, it requires also an individual state of mind. Every single participant in the RICO must have intended to violate the law. But if Donald Trump honestly believed, honestly believed that the election had been improperly taken from him, there can be no crime. It would be exactly the same as a matter of law as if the election had in fact been stolen from him. So I know it's hard for you. If you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and in the voir dire, many of you have said you think the election was fair. I think the election was fair myself. Uh, I'm not here defending uh, Donald Trump's uh, argument that the election was flawed. That's not relevant to this case. What's relevant to this case is not what I think. What's relevant to this case is not what you think. What's relevant to this case is what Donald Trump thinks. And so the government has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump 
when he said and did the things that he said and did, at that time, he knew and believed that the election was fair. And he just lied about it, lied about it, corruptly, with an intent to, to, to deliberately deceive the people. But unless the government can prove that, and it's not easy to prove intent, but unless the government can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump knew, knew that the election was fair, you must acquit. Now, we don't know what the evidence is. The trial hasn't begun yet. I have to tell you, if 25 people come in or if there's a videotape that shows Donald Trump admitting to everybody privately, oh, I know that I lost legitimately. I know that Biden won the election, but I'm just going to try to cheat my way into office. If that videotape emerges, you should disregard my argument. But if there is no such videotape, and if there's no credible evidence presented that convinces you beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump honestly knew and believed that the election was fair and that he lost legitimately, unless the government can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must acquit. I'm going to be back talking to you at the end of the trial. At that point, you'll hear all the evidence. But bear in mind when you listen to the evidence, bear in mind my hypothetical. Just remember, what if it were true? What if it were true? What if it weren't true, but Trump believed it would be true? The judge will give you an instruction on that, but you must evaluate the evidence based on that instruction. And if the judge tells you, as we believe the judge will tell you, that in order to convict, you must find beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump himself told people said to people, wrote to people, was videotaped saying to people, oh, I know this is a good election. I know this is a valid election. He probably would have used the term a perfect election. I know that, but I'm just going to cheat people. Unless that evidence is produced, ladies and gentlemen, when I come back at the end of the trial and ask you to vote to acquit and the judge gives you an instruction, your oath will require you to convict and to acquit your oath will require you to acquit and to essentially convict the prosecutor for bringing the wrong case. We're asking you to keep an open mind. We're asking you to view the evidence not only carefully, but skeptically, remembering that the burden is always on the prosecution to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. That means if you have any doubts, any doubts, you're reasonable people, so your doubts are reasonable. If you have any doubt about a witness telling the truth or about a piece of evidence being truthful, you must resolve that doubt in favor of the defendant. So by the end of the day, when this trial is over, and it'll be a long trial, and you'll have to pay close attention, I will come back and ask you to render the only just verdict that can be rendered based on the law and the facts of this case, that Donald J. Trump is not guilty of the RICO and other crimes that have been charged against him. Thank you for your attention, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. So that's the way I would argue the case. Would I win? I don't know. It would depend on the jurors. It would depend on the judge's instruction. It would depend on where the trial took place. It would depend on what the witnesses said. 
An opening statement is simply that. It's a roadmap. It tells the jurors what to expect, and it gives them a sense of what the law is, what the rules are. When you go to a baseball game, you basically know what the rules are. You know that if a person swings three times and misses, he's out. If the ball misses the plate four times, he gets to first base. You know what the rules are, and then you watch the game, and you have to apply those rules to the action you see on the diamond. The same thing is true here. So I expect you will pay close attention. Well, that's the argument I would make. Again, don't know, don't know. Um, Every lawyer will tell you they've won cases. They thought they would lose. They've lost cases. They thought they would win. The one thing I can be absolutely sure of is the cases tried in Manhattan. a combination of Jesus, Mohammed, Moses, and Abraham Lincoln uh, couldn't win a case in Manhattan against Donald Trump. If it's tried in other places, there's a, a better chance of winning. So I'm interested in how any of you, if you were jurors, would vote based on on my argument. So send me letters and, and, and tell me how you would improve my argument. I'm always open to, uh, to criticism and, and to suggestion. Okay, so now let's get to your criticisms and suggestions and your letters. Okay, this is an interesting one. I remember in 2000, Al Gore's 570-some-odd votes, one of the state's representatives went before Congress to claim that she had proved 25,000 of her constituents' votes never showed up in the totals, and they told her she would have to have two senators sign the complaint. I'm sure you remember that, Alan. I do remember it. Remember it a little differently than you do. <clears throat> I think that um, there was an argument that some votes weren't counted. And the man presiding over the Senate at that time said, I cannot recognize you unless <clears throat> your resolution is supported by one senator and one congressman. Excuse me. <clears throat> My recollection is they could not get a senator to support it. And the man who was deciding whether or not Al Gore would be president or George Bush would be president, the presiding officer of the Senate was a guy named Al Gore. He was the vice president of the United States. He was the one who made the decision not to recognize this claim because it hadn't been signed by a member of the House and a senator at the same time, which is required by the rules of Congress. That was a courageous thing to do. That was what should be done. Al Gore was a mensch, a decent guy. He knew that that ruling would deny him the presidency. He also knew if he had made the opposite ruling, who knows, the case might have been decided differently. The case may have been thrown into the House of Representatives. I don't know what the votes would have been in the House of Representatives. I'm sure I knew back then in 2000. So you have a good point. Your facts are a little off, but they're generally, generally uh, correct. But it was Al Gore who made that who made that decision. Okay. <clears throat> I hope you live forever, at least for another 30 years. This cough doesn't get any better. I'm not sure. Um, which is about what I have if I look at it very optimistically. Your non-denominational understanding of history, the Constitution, and the law is unsurpassed, not to mention that you're a damn good teacher, 
even on something as murky as YouTube. Levin was right. I am going out to get your book tomorrow. Why in the hell haven't you been the attorney general? Well, nobody asked me, but I have I've worked with some very good attorney generals. Mike Lucchese was a, a very, very good attorney general. I worked closely with Bobby Kennedy, um, both when he was attorney general and when he ran for president uh, just before his, his tragic assassination. Uh, okay. <laughs> Who will take your place if you decide to end your podcast? Well, I'm not deciding to end it. I mean, the powers that mean it. B may be deciding to do it. Uh, obviously, you need to have a lot of audience members to keep a podcast going. We did have 600,000 um, one day last week. And Elon, what are we up to now, approximately? Well, yesterday, we were 250,000. Well, we were 250,000 yesterday, and it probably climbs. Let's hope we hit 600,000 again today. If you want me to stay on the air, got to get your friends. It's going to, well. It's oh, going well. It's going well. You got to get your friends to watch. Um, I love listening to your online classes about the U.S. Constitution, how you explain our laws for the general public. I'll soon be 79. Hey, you're a kid. I've always been interested in law. I took one law class, introduction to law a few years ago. Every high school should require an introduction to law class. I learned a lot. Well, that's, a, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Um, an, another nice one. This guy has more energy than most people I know, and he's a million years old. I'm not a million years old. I'm going to be uh, 85 in about eight days, and I'm going to try to read my portion from the Torah uh, that I read during my bar mitzvah uh, 72 years ago, and I'll see if I can still read it. I'll, I'll practice on you right now. My bar mitzvah, Sedra, was shoftim, about judges, and two of the most important lines in shoftim are tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice, shall you seek? And the other is lo takir ponim, do not recognize faces. Shoftim v'shotrim, titen l'cha b'cha al-shirecha, ha-sheridin o'elahecha, no-tein l'achlishvatim. That's what my portion was. I can still sing it. And we'll see if I have the voice to sing it on Saturday, which is the uh, 72nd anniversary of uh, my bar mitzvah. And uh, I hope, and I think you hope, that I'll have some more anniversaries and maybe my voice will improve. Um, this is a nice one. Most enjoyable law show since the paper chase. I love the paper chase. Some people thought I was the professor, but I was not. It was Clark, it was, uh, Clark Bice, who was one of my mentors and a, a great professor, who was the model for uh, paper chase. I was a professor at the time that the author of Paper Chase wrote his book. But as far as I know, he was not, he was not in my class. Rico requires a shared enterprise like a business. A client and his lawyer have never been construed as an enterprise. That makes hiring a lawyer dangerous legally for any citizen and any lawyer. Uh, what an insane prosecution. I, I think I agree with that. I don't think a lawyer and a client constitute an enterprise. I'm not sure what the enterprise is in this case. I know it the indictment says, but it doesn't sound like an enterprise. It sounds like uh, a bunch of Keystone cops running around trying to undo an election and failing to do it. It doesn't sound like an enterprise to me. Alan, thank you. I know you aren't a big fan of President Trump. I'm a fan of his Middle East policies, I have to tell you that. But you love the rule of law. Everyone should be able to step back and distance their emotions from the facts you always have. Much respect. I enjoy listening to you. Um, and another one says, listening to your explanations is like sitting in a classroom, but no grades, no exams. So it's better. It's better. Um, 
what is going on that this channel doesn't have millions and millions of subscribers? I'm confounded by many realities in today's world. This is the next level. So, so thanks. Uh, this is a criticism. Alan always has a foot in each camp. That's how he navigates. No, that's not true. I have both feet clearly in the camp of the Constitution. What happens is sometimes the Constitution favors one camp. Sometimes the Constitution favors the other camp. But I never switch camps. I'm always on the side of the Constitution. For me, the law is more important than politics. Um, I just ordered Get Trump from Amazon. I doubt I would have ordered it if not for the fact that it's been banned. Well, you know, I'll take it anyway. If you want to order the book in order to show bookstores that we don't need you, we can get it on Amazon. And, you know, that's why Amazon is doing so well and bookstores are doing so poorly, because bookstores are political. Bookstores pick their books based on the politics of the owner often. And that's not the way to sell books. Uh, Amazon sells its books based on who's selling the most books. My book is now number one in political commentary and number one in executive functions and, and overall <clears throat> still pretty high among nonfiction books. But that's because Amazon doesn't take positions. These local bookstores and these local book fairs that ban my book and ban other books that are on, quote, the wrong side of the political spectrum, they're not going to stay in business long. Certainly, you shouldn't help them stay in business. You go to a bookstore, ask them for my book. If they don't have it, say, I'll shop elsewhere. So, so I guess they indict 19 people so that Trump will have few witnesses left to testify on his behalf. Very perceptive point. Very perceptive. If you're indicted, you're not going to testify because then you can be cross-examined and it can end up hurting you and your criminal prosecution. So I think this massive indictment of 19 people partly is an attempt to try to reduce the number of witnesses. Is that obstruction of justice? Is that tampering with witnesses? I leave that to you. What can you tell us about Epstein Island? You've been there. What did you eat? All right, I'll tell you. I was on Epstein Island with my wife and my daughter. Uh, the first few months when he bought it, there was nothing there. There were no young people. Uh, the only people on the island were repairmen. Um, and we had roast beef, I think. And uh, um, then we left. And I was never back on the island after that. Uh, there are no people say to me in my emails all the time, well, you're on the logs. No, no, you can't show me a single log <clears throat> because there is none that I was on taking me to Epstein Island or to St. whatever, where, where it was. It's just never happened. You can believe it if you want, but the facts are clearly to the contrary. And as you know, the woman who accused me has now admitted that she may have misidentified me. She may have confused me for somebody else. So she's withdrawn all the charges. But the emails still come in every day. Every single day I get an email accusing me of um, improper conduct. Uh, on Epstein's Island or with the woman or uh, in other contexts. It's just not true. And I will keep denying it because it, my denials are truthful. One problem for Trump's lawyers is that there are no risks for prosecutors in overcharging or false charging Trump associates, and they will pile on. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Prosecutors get promoted, even if they bring bad cases and they lose their cases. There's almost no consequence for prosecutors. There's a famous case where a prosecutor held up what he called was bloody underwear in a rape murder case, claiming that this blood came from the victim. And the man was convicted of capital crime and sentenced to death. And then it was proved that the prosecutor was holding up a pair of underwear that had red 
paint and no blood and that the prosecutor knew it and the prosecutor never was prosecuted or gone to jail. You know, under the Bible, what would happen to that prosecutor? He'd get the death penalty because under biblical law, a false accusation gets the same punishment that would be given to the person if he were truthfully accused. But you're right. Prosecutors do not pay a price for making false charges. I wish they did. Okay. Uh, see you next week. Uh, think about letters. You can write me letters all week. You don't have to wait till the day uh, of, of the podcast, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. In the meantime, hey, get my book, get Trump, get it on Amazon. And I think you'll enjoy it. And you'll see how many predictions I made in that book, which have come true. See you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.